0: Welcome to Episode 22 of the podcast of Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor Story. I am the author, Shereen Chichiboy. Chapter 22 more family trouble. It's Miriam's turn to row with Cliff. It's a nightly thing, and she's starting to feel guilty about it, not because of the conflict itself, but because of how it's affecting her mother. Judy steps out of the kitchen to try to make peace, as she usually does. One of her rules is not to talk about it, whatever the problem is, unless you have to. These two are violating her rule loudly and dragging her down. She has been feeling well since Geege had cleared up all her nutritional deficiencies and feeling more settled since Cindy had left a few years earlier. But now, these two stubborn and so-alike members of her family are bringing chaos back into her life. She says to Miriam about this latest contretemps. We'll work it out. Don't worry. I'll talk to your father. To Cliff, she says, we'll talk about this later. The two separate. In the cool light of the following morning, Miriam decides to put an end to the fighting. She speaks to her friend in Fenland Falls and not long after she moves in with her friend's family in order to give her mom a break and to make biking to work easier. With Miriam gone, the house quietens down. Judy and Cliff revert to their routines. It's 1978 and Cliff has left his oil burner job to become a manager in a lumber store. Tuesday is his day off. He looks outside at the fine weather and sees it's a good time to clean the bow window that faces the lake. It's fiddly work, cleaning a multitude of little mullions, and it takes him all day. Near supper time, he empties the dirty water, puts his tools away, cleans up, and collapses in his chair, thankful to be done. He picks up the paper to read what his favorite football team, the Toronto Argonauts, is up to. But after a few lines, he realizes he doesn't remember a thing. He starts over. He starts again. Now, he can't pronounce the words. In frustration, he screws up the paper and throws it on the floor. Judy peers out from the kitchen but says nothing. She calls him to the table and they eat in silence. He cannot say words out loud. When she brings dessert to the table, she shows him the whipped cream can and asks him, What's that? He shakes his head. That hurts. It's whipped cream. She pauses briefly and asks, What is it? He doesn't know. He pushes back his chair, deciding to go straight to bed. He has a tremendous headache. It's gripped him for 45 minutes. Suddenly, it leaves. He sleeps. Unbeknownst to him, the clot has just left his brain. Judy stays mum the next morning, knowing if she says anything, he will refuse to heed her advice, just to be contrary. Even though he has regained his speech, Cliff feels exhausted and makes an appointment to see Dr. John DeCosta, their new GP the previous one had moved out of the area. Da Costa tells him not to work until he has a dye study and an EEG done. It'll take about two or three months to book him for the dye study, but he refers him to Peterborough for an EEG that week. Cliff tells Judy that night that he has to wait for the big test and cannot work until then. She is having none of that. She phones Jeej. Within a week, Cliff has been wheeled into the OR at TGH under the care of a top neurologist. After reviewing his test results, the neurologist tells him to take two aspirin a day and a water pill, and not to let anyone change these orders. Da Costa had already told him to start jogging, which he does faithfully every night after supper, six to eight kilometers. Meanwhile, he stays off work for a month and accompanies Judy on her usual errands. In Zeller's department store, Judy stops to chat to a strange woman. Cliff stays rooted near the cart. Judy and the women part, and Judy returns to Cliff's side. Why didn't you come over and speak to Shirley? She asks Cliff. Who is Shirley? Jim's wife. You worked for him for two or three years. Oh, Cliff remembers now. They look at each other silently. He's lost his memory for faces, but not for names. Judy has already changed her cooking style, skinning the chicken breasts, feeding him rice every night, preparing low-fat meals, and ensuring he eats dinner at the same time. Today, she decides that when in public, she'll whisper, you remember so-and-so, so that he will know who they're bumping into and can say hello like normal. She also pesters him to move into town to be safer. They do, but Judy feels claustrophobic and bobcage improper, and time heals her fear of losing him. Two years later, they move back to the lake into a bigger house. Life settles down again. Julie, their now 21-year-old middle daughter, pops in for a visit. Judy and she sit and chat, just the two of them. Judy unburdens onto Julie her latest worry, knowing that Julie will blow off whatever she tells her and will not hold a grudge when Judy lets go of her anger and moves on. Julie keeps her face neutral as she listens. They hear the door open, and in walks Cliff. A grin crawls across his face when he sees Julie. He joins them and the conversation turns to lighter topics. Judy fills the space with her bold laughter While Julie smiles her shy smile and Cliff natters away. It's pleasant, even when a natural silence between topics grows. I'm pregnant, Julie announces. Judy and Cliff stare at their unwed daughter, who has always been a rock for Judy. Julie looks at the rug. She has been putting off this moment for as long as possible, but at five months along, she fears an observant neighbor will tell her mother. Cliff retires into silence, but Judy speaks her mind. Julie! How can you be so stupid? Julie says nothing. You don't know how disappointed I am in you. Who's the father? Gord, of course, Julie replies, pronouncing the name of her living boyfriend. You should marry him before the baby is born. No, I don't think that's a good idea, mom. So many people get married in these situations and then their marriages don't last. Then all you hear about is how they only married because of the baby. I definitely don't want that. And I don't want Gord in that situation either. Judy says nothing. If I can't afford to take care of it, we could put it up for adoption. Julie offers this olive branch to her mother, for it goes without saying that abortion is a non starter. Not only is her mom dead set against it, but she has also many a time told her family about how lucky she feels for having been adopted and not aborted, for having been given a chance at life. Well, if that's the way to go, I'll help you as far as finding out who you can talk to. When she enters the church office later that week, Judy sees in Joyce Junkin's eyes that the news has already spread. How you doing, Judy? Well, you know, Joyce, it's happened. Now we'll just carry on and get on with it. Can you put her on the prayer chain, please? She knocks on Bentley's door. He calls her to come in and they sit down in the quiet of his office. With his full attention on her, she shares her self-doubts. Self-doubts are rare for her, Bentley knows. Her strategy has always been business as usual, life goes on, and we're not going to talk about it, whether the it is her illness or personal worries. But she had abandoned the strategy with Julie. She had let Julie see the truth of her life, the truth of how she really felt about such personal anguishes as Cindy, not just the face that she showed to everybody else. Now she wonders if she did the right thing by Julie. She tells Bentley that she suspects this pregnancy is Julie's way to break free in the time-honored fashion of many an outwardly submissive female. I see now I was right to have adopted my strategy. I made the mistake of breaking my rule with Julie. My life was for the family, but it created the situation that led to her pregnancy. How can she have been so stupid? Judy vacillates between fury at Julie and guilt overburdening her daughter. She agonizes that the very thing keeping her alive may have led to this, just as it had led to Cindy running away and Miriam leaving home. Bentley lets her vent until, with a deep sigh, Judy stops speaking. She feels unburdened and ready to go on with life, just like she did after Cliff's stroke and her TPN. She leaves to visit Julie, determined to organize Julie's house so it will be ready for the baby. Julie has a dog, cat, and boyfriend living with her in a house that looks more like a summer cottage. Judy tells her daughter that she will drive her to the obstetrician in Peterborough, that she'll take her shopping for baby clothes and all the things that she will need from diapers to a crib, and that she'll hold a shower for her later. Baby April arrives in January 1982, and Julie and Gord marry in May, much to Judy's relief. But Cliff maintains his silence. He refuses to speak to Julie. Thinking about her father's tendency to bottle everything up, Julie decides that the best way to help them communicate again is to drop in on him at work, just to say hello and chat long enough to show him that she's fine and that her life is stable. It takes a year, but he thaws and eventually accompanies Judy to coo over his first grandchild and then in successive years over his second and third grandchildren, Tara and Jeremy. Meanwhile, Miriam graduates high school and enters Laurentian University. On a weekend visits to her parents' home, she jokes about how it would be nice for her dad to give her tuition money, but she pays her own way and doesn't expect anything else. She's determined to succeed on her own. From the time he had left home at sixteen to work. Cliff paid for everything with cash, except for the house in Scarborough. He had drummed this lesson into all three of his daughters instead of handing her money. Judy makes up regular care packages for her and tells Miriam to help herself to anything she needs in the house. Miriam appreciates her mom's efforts and believes that she has none of her own money to offer anyway. But when Judy's mother had died, Judy had come into a nice inheritance. She told Bentley with pride that she now had her own money, money she didn't have to ask Cliff for. But she has no desire to spend it. Maintaining her life costs a lot, even though Cliff had fought the government back in 1971 for funds to cover the costs of her TPN without having to go on welfare in order to get it, and had won. Since a stroke, they worry separately that he'll die before she does. While she feeds him enormous, nutritious muffins and skinless chicken, he squirrels money away so that when he dies, she will be able to continue to live the life she's accustomed to. Not a life of material wealth, but life, period. He wants her to have enough money to meet her needs worry-free and to help others. Miriam completes her undergraduate degree in physical and health education in only three and a half years. Judy and Cliff attend her convocation. Judy cries with happiness not only at seeing one of her daughters graduating university, but also knowing that she has been accepted to the University of Toronto's Teacher College. She looks forward to the next graduation, a bit of good news in what is turning out to be a deteriorating decade. During the 1980s, Judy has given up some of her volunteer activities, but has become a literacy tutor, a less strenuous task that still allows her to help others. She feels compassion for the adults who cannot read or write and is passionate about giving them those skills. She does not see Miriam's news coming. Miriam had met her boyfriend through work while still in her teens, and he was 20 years her senior and married. Judy used to bake Nanaimo bars and marshmallow squares for this man to sell in his restaurant, but she didn't know that he was Miriam's boyfriend. After many years of surreptitious dating, keeping the relationship from the prime years of Bob Cajun's, This man has now left his wife and Miriam feels free to tell her parents. Cliff is furious. But by this time, Judy can only muster, oh Miriam. Still, despite her disappointment, she cannot imagine what this man has in store for her daughter. On the very last day of teacher's college, Miriam's boyfriend commits suicide. She cannot write the final exam. But the college, feeling her devastation, graduates her. She stays in Toronto to find a job. Judy understands, but tries to hold on to one last thread of control. She cannot call her daughters in Toronto because Cliff would see the long-distance calls listed on the phone bill and become upset. Instead, she has Miriam, like Cindy, call her, and she will call them whenever she is in the hospital. That will have to do. You have been listening to Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story, a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible. Podcast by the author Shireen Gigi-Boy, one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King is Back by Echoed, licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under Instrumental Music for Film and Video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at ggboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. So until next time, thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shireen Gigi Boy.